In the early 20th century, a tradition began of celebrating March 8th as International Women's Day, an annual invitation to celebrate women's contributions to events in history and to contemporary society. In the early 1980s, this tradition expanded in the U.S. to Women's History Week and a few years later to March as Women's History Month. Now, if you've been around UUCF for a while, you'll know, know that one of my core convictions is that the stories we choose to tell matter. And we really do have a choice in which stories we lift up and repeat and which we allow to be neglected. And too often, our collective cultural histories and the stories that have been most frequently told have been told more by men than by women, and in a way that was biased toward male perspectives and experiences. And as you have also heard me quote before, if you're not at the table in the room where it happens, you might end up on the menu. So what might a different way forward look like that includes greater gender equity? Uh, Elizabeth Lesser, how many of you know her? She's the co-founder of the Omega Institute. So I see a few hands out there. It's a holistic retreat center in New York. Uh, Lesser has said it this way. In her view, the basic belief of feminism is not that women are right and men are wrong. It's that women are people and their voices matter. <laughs> Their values matter. Their stories matter. It's time for women to tell their versions of what it means to be fully human, lesser rights. It's time for men to respect those insights and for all of us to imagine and integrate them into a new story of power. So on this Sunday in Women's History Month, I'd like to invite us to explore some of what that new way forward might look like in conversation with two books in particular. The first is by Elizabeth Lesser herself. It's titled, Cassandra Speaks. When women are the storytellers, history changes. The second book is The Heroine with a Thousand and One Faces by Maria Tatar, a professor of literature, folklore, and mythology at Harvard University. If this sermon leaves you curious to learn more, both those books are good. I will tell you, Lesser's book is much shorter and more accessible. So if you're looking for where to start, you might want to start with Cassandra Speaks. But before proceeding on, a, on this journey of rewriting and reimagining from women's perspectives, I should clarify that a UU approach to Women's History Month very much includes women in the broadest possible sense, you know, including trans women and beyond. There's a lot to say about that, and we've gone into depth in previous sermons that are available in our online archive, but given the rise in political attacks recently on transgender folks, it feels important in this Women's History Month sermon to give just a brief overview of four important terms related to what I mean when I say we mean Women's History Month in the broadest possible sense of that term. Those four terms are gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, and orientation. And the re here's the really important thing, as I quickly go through all four of those as kind of bullet points. Wherever you are or others are on the spectrum of each of those is not correlated to where you are. So you could be like over here on one, here, like, so they're, they're not correlated terms. It may make more sense as I go through them. Gender identity is internal. Think about if you just pricked your, your brain. 
gender identity is what are you in your mind? Do you consider yourself a woman, a man, somewhere in between? Keeping in mind again that our notions of what woman and man and uh, that means have differed significantly across cultures and time. So gender identity in your mind. Gender expression is external. In your clothes, in your behavior, do you present more as masculine, feminine, androgynous, gender fluid? Again, keeping in mind that what we mean by masculine and feminine gender expression has changed radically. It's constructed across time. You know, it used to be that um, you know, blue was a feminine color and red was a masculine color, right? The Virgin Mary, what color is she always in? Blue, right? Because it was this quiet, your red was hot, like mint, right? These things have really changed over time. Like they're just so clearly socially constructed. Orientation is in your heart. Are you sexually and or romantically attracted more to men, males, masculinity, or women, females, femininity, both, neither, somewhere in between? Biological sex is more complicated than whether your chromosomes are XY male or XX female. For instance, somewhere between 1 in 1,500 and 1 in 2,000 births, a child is born so noticeably atypical in genitalia that a specialist in sex differentiation is called in. Somewhere between 1 in 1,500 or 1 in 2,000. And a lot more people than that are born with subtler forms of sex anatomy variations, some of which don't show up until later in life. So each of these are kind of on a spectrum, and they're just not correlated. Like, you can be all these different combinations, and clearly people are in, in our world, and they're a lot more out about it than they used to be, which is a good and healthy thing. So the point is, there are a number of angles to consider if we're to celebrate Women's History Month in the broadest possible sense of that term. And notice that in so doing, we actually have already begun to re-story. Re and to re-mythologize, noting that gender is a social construction that has too often been defined in ways that make straight white males the norm and everything else derivative, or sometimes um, straight cisgendered white women the norm and everything else, again, lesser than. Women's History Month is one among many invitations to widen our circles of compassion and inclusion. So let's get more into it. When Dr. Maria Tatar entitled her book, The Heroine with a Thousand and One Faces, she had at least two other major books in mind, and some of you may already know what I'm talking about. First, she's alluding to the highly influential book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. Uh, as Campbell compared all, said that was published in 1949. As Campbell compared all the different mythologies around the world, he came up with this theory that there's an underlying archetypal structure that he called the hero's journey or the monomyth. This model has been widely impactful in many popular Hollywood films and television shows and many books and many other aspects of popular culture. And Campbell's monomyth makes the case that all of our most influential stories boil down to a singular template that basically is something like a hero leaves home, encounters one or more crises, and then returns home transformed by those experiences. It's basically act one, act two, and act three of most uh, plays. But here's the rub. Campbell came up with all those theories about the monomyth and the hero's journey while he was a professor. He spent his career as a professor at Sarah Lawrence College in New York. Side point, it's Mr. Campbell, not Dr. Campbell. He never finished his PhD. Just side note. Uh, where he taught from, not there's anything wrong with that, but let's just like dial it down a little, Joseph Campbell. Like, you know, like, because uh, he was pretty arrogant about a lot of things for a lot of his life. Uh, he taught there four decades from 1934 to 1972. I 
I'll give you some direct quotes that show what I mean. Uh, for almost all of that time, until 1968, Sarah Lawrence was an all-women's school. So now on one hand, at this all-women's school, Campbell's classes were so popular year after year, they had to limit enrollment to only your senior year. You could only enroll in his classes. That's how popular they were. On the other hand, it is, shall we say, problematic to be teaching this male-biased monomyth at an all-women's school. And it became increasingly problematic with second-wave feminism. And in 1972, during Campbell's final year teaching at Sarah Lawrence, in the midst, again, of second-wave feminism, one of those seniors finally directly asked Campbell, you've been talking about the hero, but what about the women? Campbell replied, <laughs> this is one of those uh, quotes that I was telling you about. He literally said this, the woman's the mother of the hero. That's what she gets to be. She's the, I'm not done. She's the, uh, nor is he. He's the, she, sorry, she's the goal of the hero's achieving. She's the protectress of the hero. She's this, she's that. What more do you want? You demanding women, right? She retorted, I want to be the hero, right? Dr. Tatar's book, uh, The Heroine with a Thousand and One Faces, takes up that challenge on behalf of all women who have ever experienced uh, countless parts of popular culture influenced by Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces and felt that they wanted to be not the help bait, but the hero. Uh, her title also one-ups Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces with an allusion to Scheherazade's A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, right, which was meant not just a thousand, not just so many, but a thousand and one, right, that there's just no end to the stories we might tell uh, beyond the male-biased monomyth. As for Joseph Campbell, he died in 1987 without ever publishing a book that centers women's experience. However, I do think that student's comment in 1972 arguably did really change him. During the, the next and what we now know was the final decade and a half of his life from 1972 when he retired from Sarah Lawrence to 1987 when he died, he delivered more than 20 lectures and workshops exploring the figures and functions and symbols and themes of the feminine divine. And in 2013, those lectures and workshops were finally collected together for the first time in a book titled Goddesses, Mysteries of the Feminine Divine, which is now an official part of the eight-volume uh, collected works of Joseph Campbell. I'll share with you just one quote from that volume where Campbell kind of figures out what he was getting wrong and actually confesses. All I can tell you about mythology is what men have said and experienced, and now women have to tell us from their point of view what the possibilities of a more feminine future are. And it is a future, it's as though liftoff has taken place. Like, we're not there yet, right? But he was saying liftoff has begun to take place. It really has, he said. There's no doubt about it. I appreciate Campbell's willingness to finally be honest later in his life that his previous work was incomplete. And it has become clear that we need not a monomyth, not a singular archetype for all people and places, but we need a plurality of uh, perspectives and stories to more fully capture the breadth and depth, the diversity of the human experience from masculinity to femininity to gender non-binary and everywhere in between. On the importance of what we might imagine together if we give ourselves the chance, a, a, a phrase from Toni Morrison comes to mind. She used to say, and this applies to a lot of things beyond this, but she used to say, dream a little before you think. 
Dream a little before you think. Don't just think within the received categories like Campbell's monomyth. Take some time to dream a little about the thousand and one faces, the infinite possibilities of what might be beyond that. At the same time, let's also be honest that sometimes a wide open blank canvas or blank page can be a little scary, a little intimidating. Where are we gonna go with all this? As the classicist and poet Ann Carson once said, to live past the end of your myth is a perilous thing. To live past the end of your myth, like kind of the, the safe myth that you know, that's a perilous thing. It has both peril and great promise. But if we do accept the task, what might we discover if we boldly begin to co-create, re-story, re-mythologize what new as yet unforeseen possibilities might open? Sometimes such re-mythologizing happens by switching the narrative from the traditional male point of view to retell the story from women's perspectives. That change alone can be powerful, but one major problem with it is if you go back and look and if you just kind of think through in your head many of those classical um, myths, women were often in pretty dire straits in, in a lot of those stories. So if you just go back and tell the story from that point of view, without changing the overall patriarchal myth, you end up going into some detail, and some people have done this, and it's effective, but you go into detail on some fairly horrific tales of assault and abduction and of injury and of trauma, is a lot of what was happening to women in these stories. Relatedly, a more contemporary example of centering women's experience is the important and impactful Me Too movement that was coined by the African-American activist Tarana Burke of publicly sharing stories of abuse and harassment that for far too long uh, women had kept silent out of fear, not just women, but out of fear of retaliation uh, and by, often by men writing stories in the male monomyth, right? It's all kind of tied up together. Another approach to remythologizing is to replace all the leading men with leading women, to replace all the heroes with heroines. That's interesting too. Uh, think about the, all, the recent all-female remake of Ghostbusters, right? And we could think of other examples. Some advantages to this strategy as well, but it's also sometimes still operating from a dominant patriarchal paradigm. So how might we further expand our playbook to remythologize even further? One starting point can be simply giving ourselves permission to do so. Elizabeth Lesser says it this way of how this has really come for her with time. In many ways, our culture uh, fetishizes youth, but Lesser has come to see as she's grown older that it can be a really freeing thing. See if any of you can identify with this. She says, the best thing about being older is I find that I finally trust my own point of view. And just breathe that in for a second. Is that true for any of you that as you've gotten older, you can finally trust your own point of view, even if people are trying to gaslight you? She says, so much so that I no longer suppress it when it deserves to be expressed, nor do I argue it with a person who's uninterested in listening, learning, growing, or helping me listen, learn, and grow. Like she's like, I just kind of walk away. She says, I know my own heart. I value my experience, and I'm not afraid of being exposed when I'm wrong. You know, Brene Brown often says it this way, I'm not here to be right, I'm here to get it right. I'm not here to be right, I'm just here to get it right, and if I'm wrong, let's talk about it. That's what Lesser's saying. I'm not looking for accolades when I do the right thing. I'm at home in my own skin, my own mind, and in the joy and mess of being human.
Can any of you relate to parts of that? Does it feel to any of you like kind of a sigh of relief? You know, I, wow, I finally get to trust my own point of view more. Maybe many of you have been like, yep, been there for a long time, and that, that's great. You know, I'm more, more at home in your own skin, your own mind, and in the joy and mess of being um, fully human. Part of what I take Lesser to mean is that she's come to understand herself as no less worthy to co-create new mythologies than those ancient myth makers who came before. They got to tell their myths, she can do the same thing. We're not limited to the stories of of the past, although we may or may not find those to be of value. Either way, whether we do or don't find them to be valuable, we have the freedom to create new myths that serve us more fully and are based in a more inclusive set of values and perspectives. And there is good news that all of this is not idle speculation. For many decades now, it was sort of slow going before, but really the snowball has really gotten going on restoring and remythologizing. I wonder, for example, how many of you remember or were influenced by Clarissa um, um, Pinkola Estes' book, Women Who Run With the Wolves? I see that, like, yes, a few of those. It was a bestseller for a number of years in the early 90s. At least for a number of women that I was hanging out with in college, that was a life-changing book. I just watched them, like, light up. I mean, it's really powerful. Or how many of you participated in a Cakes for the Queen of Heaven class in a UU congregation? Anybody? All right, I see, a, I see a hand or two out there. Uh, Cakes for the Queen of Heaven was a widely influential UU religious education curriculum published in the mid-80s that centered women's experience and the feminine divine. Really powerful for a lot of people. There are many more examples. We can turn back the clock a little to celebrate older examples. Uh, little Women, Anne of Green Gables, Nancy Drew, right? And how each of those, we could trace the line of how those then kind of matured and got more radical in like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Sex in the City, you know, Sex in the City, is that the new little women, right? They're, you know, it's like, it's a similar archetype, right? But a little more radical. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Look at the arcs of Arya and Sansa Stark, for any of you that watch Game of Thrones. How, I mean, really powerful arcs for those two um, women. Disney's Moana and Elsa, the chess champion Beth from The Queen's Gambit, if any of you watched that. Ava DuVernay's Naomi, about a black um, girl superhero that's um, out now. This is just a super short list, right? We could go on and on. That's good news. We could go on and on all day with more examples of uh, this burgeoning remythologizing. Another of my recent favorites, I saw someone post on social media, what if we reimagined Wonder Woman to be someone who was just really smart and sat around wondering things? (laughs) Instead of being wonderful for being strong and wearing skimpy clothing, right? (laughs) Like, we can reimagine these things. So much more. Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, There's so much more to say about all this, but as I move toward my conclusion, I want to end with just two final examples of one more method of remythologizing, which is reinterpreting classical myths from the perspective of women's liberation. First, let's take on one of the most influential myths that has been frequently interpreted in misogynistic ways, and that's the story of Eve, the apple. It's really a fruit. It doesn't actually say apple, but when you paint it, you have to pick a fruit. Uh, Eve, the apple, and the serpent in the Garden of Eden. This tale has often been understood in ways that scapegoats Eve and all um, women thereafter for this alleged original sin by the archetypal woman. 
One option is, of course, we can just dismiss this story. We can just say, this is an obsolete fable, and I'm not even going to bother. That's fine. You're too tied up in patriarchal religion to be relevant today. Another option is to use our thousand and one tools of imaginative remythologizing to highlight neglected pieces of this text. Notice, for instance, that God, that I think we could call here in this reading Father God, tells Adam and Eve, quote, I'm just literally reading from the biblical text. I'm not like inserting my feminist propaganda in here. Now there's anything wrong with inserting feminist propaganda, but I'm not doing that here. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of life, of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But here's what the serpent tells Eve, that Father God is not telling you the whole truth. Anyone have a father figure in their life that didn't tell them the whole truth? Uh, the serpent says, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the biblical text says explicitly that the woman ate of the fruit because she, quote, saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So what if we reclaim this text, not as a cautionary tale about what happens when, you know, uppity women disobey their father figures, what if we take it as an inspirational tale of trusting of what can happen when women trust what is right in front of them, just trust their own eyes, trust their experience, learn to take risks and to begin to live life on their own terms. From this perspective, we could celebrate Eve not as the original sinner, but as humankind's first grown-up, someone who shows us we don't have to stay as naive children in our parents' garden forever, as if that even would have been a good thing if they had done that. We can grow up. We can create our own families of choice. We can discover what life has to offer. In this sense, Eve becomes not someone to denigrate, but someone to emulate that shows us how to trust our experience and become wise. Or to take on one final classical myth, you'll remember that Lesser's book is called Cassandra Speaks. So let's end with that. Uh, I think this classical myth of Cassandra is deeply relevant to our own uh, situation today. Cassandra is known as the woman cursed to know the truth of what is coming in the future, but to never be believed. If you go back and read this story closely, you'll find why did she receive that curse? Because she was unwilling to go along with the inappropriate sexual advances of a male god. That's why she was cursed, because she wouldn't have sex with the male god. Cassandra's story is an archetypal Me Too tale, but it's not just that. And here is where we get to choose how we respond to these ancient myths. Do we accept on face value that women or progressive people generally are doomed to tell the truth and never be believed? Some of you may be thinking of that recent Netflix film, Don't Look Up. Did any of you watch that? Yeah, I see some nodding out there that explores the themes of the world's population not believing what scientific data is clearly saying. Do we just accept that will always be the case, that we're all going to be Cassandras? Or do we take on the challenge of reclaiming the Cassandra myth and learning to that we do know the truth and learning not just that I don't even just want to feel righteous, I want to leverage power and win to turn our dreams into deeds and to build the world we dream about. Women, yes, indeed, uh, women like Tarana Burke, uh, women like Greta Thunberg, right, on climate justice, uh, and so many others that are showing up and showing us that another world is possible. As Amanda Gorman said, if we are only brave enough to see it, like Eve saw that apple, right? If only we are brave enough to be it.
So on this Sunday in Women's History Month, let us celebrate that we are not limited to the hero's journey or just to the male monomyth. We can continue to benefit from that. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's like, if y'all know that, that, art, that myth of the bird that only has one wing, if only, if only one side of the, you just fly in a circle, right? So it's like we've had just one, one wing. We need both rings to fly fully and freely into the future possibilities. There are a thousand and one ways, really an infinite number of ways to imagine and live into a more inclusive future that is deeply shaped by care, by empathy, compassion, and new yet unforeseen forms of justice. So as we hold all this in our heart and continue to discern how are we individually, how are we collectively called to live into this future, let's sing together a hymn.